Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on August 31st, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. And in this episode, we'll talk about the September issue of Scientific American magazine with Editor-in-Chief Marriott Cristina, and a little bit about one of the big questions of our time, where is the money going to come from to support new media? Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. I spoke to Marriott in her office. Marriott, the September, the big September issue, we always have a single topic issue, and our single topic this year is... Origins. Like of the species? Like, well, you know, origins of the species, but like origins of the species and everything else, actually, which yep. is one of the really fun things about this issue. We've actually already done our Darwin issue of the, for, for this special year of Darwin, so this is a lot of other origins. Uh, uh, let's Let's real quick talk about some of the types of origins we're talking about, and then we'll talk about how this issue originated. That sounds great. So some of the origins we have about, well, we have more than 50 different origins in this issue, and we go from the very large and cosmic, from the origins of the universe and the origins of life itself, to the origins of the human mind in computing, and also to do things you just that you might wor- wonder about just in your everyday life, like where where did the stirrup on the horse come from, on horseback riding come from? Where did the uh, clock come from? And we have two two really different uh, sides to the issue. There are a few of our traditional feature pieces which run six or seven or eight pages, and then we have a whole bunch of these little half page origin items. The terrific thing about single topic issues in general is they let you dive really deep. And Scientific American is so well known for diving deep in its individual feature articles. You mentioned there are six or eight pages in long form writing and you can really get into depth. And we have several articles that do that in this issue as well. But we thought it would be really fun to cover a gamut of other sorts of origin stories that you wouldn't necessarily have room to do them eight to ten page treatment on all of them. So we chose to do a variety of them instead over more than 20 pages. So the depth is in the number of pages there. I'm turning to page 74, actually, because there were a couple of things. I was just leafing through all of these shorter origins pieces, and and I learned a couple of really interesting things, such as we have this half a page on the origins of insurance. Now, the insurance industry is getting, uh, they're, they're, they're getting batted around a bit during this whole healthcare reform discussion. But uh, what's really interesting is that the advent of or the necessity for insurance wound up being a crucial driver to the advent of mathematics and probability. One of the amazing things about science, isn't it, that uh, one, how one thing leads to another, the famous shoulder of giants uh, response? It was Newton who said, if I can see further, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. And it was, I believe, Gerald Holton, the uh, historian of science, who once commented at a dinner, we are now privileged to sit side by side with the giants upon whose shoulders we stand. <laughs> I like that one. Well, one of the fun things about items such as that insurance one or others is in each case, we've zeroed on some unique moment of insight for the origin story that we're telling and tried to connect it with a larger picture of science and do this in a a half page, as you mentioned, is a neat trick, but it makes them all really very fun and exciting, kind of light too. One of the other things I like in the issue too is... um, 
it answers questions for me. One of my favorites, you, you know, I, I don't remember what page it was uh, offhand, but it, it, it we answer the perennial question about which was first, the chicken or the I egg. I think that's the next Find page. That page Steve. It is page 77. <laughs> okay, on page 77, the chicken and the egg. So, folks, the biological answer there is clear as a bell. It's the egg, although the question itself is the problem there where, you know, the insight is eggs don't in one full, well, I want to say well swoop because my former geometry teacher used to say that to me. Swell foop. He used to to back it up all the time, so I still have this verbal hitch. But, um, of course, you can't, and this is also so appropriate in a Darwin year, create a species with one egg, uh, one jump, but in each succeeding generation where mutations build up, eventually speciation occurs. So the egg first, the species itself, though, took a little while longer than one egg. And then in a larger biological sense, you had eggs way, way before you had anything resembling birds. True, right. true. So clearly, as a structural unit, the egg came first. As a structural unit. But uh, we've got these these feature pieces as well, uh, the origins of the universe, the origins of life on Earth, origins of computing. I'm going to, uh, in a future episode, have an interview, uh, have a plan with the uh, actual author of the Origins of the Universe article. So why don't we talk just a little bit, just for a minute or two, about the Origins of Life article, because... Um, Fat is such a dirty word in our current, you know, obesity, uh, riddled society. But without fat, there would have been no life on Earth. I, I love it that you're pointing that out, Steve, because I was just trying to think of how could I get rid of some of my own extra fat and lipid content. But let's back up to the origin of life on Earth, because, of course, it's really hard to pinpoint an exact moment and it's very complicated how life works in general. There are these, you know, there's your DNA and it needs to be broken down. And there's this essential mystery about how, how could one get, get started with DNA where you need enzymes to break the DNA up so that you can then replicate. So it looks like a, a really classic paradoxical puzzle where there's no beginning and no end. Scientists have, have through their research figured out that RNA uh, a close relative of DNA could have been a first uh, step toward life. But RNA needs to go, or anything needs to go, into something protected so that it can do its replicating thing. And here's where Steve's discussion of fat comes in. Fat, as it turns out, or lipids in, um, in early primitive Earth could self-form enclosures, that could keep that genetic material or keep that early primeval RNA version contained so that larger molecules couldn't come in and out willy-nilly, and so that um, other strands of RNA could eventually connect and replicate inside that cellular, well, protocellular form. Right. Lipids just naturally form spheres. Right. Lipids naturally form spheres, and also they kind of naturally come together so there's a mechanism for lipids to, for the lipid sphere to start to grow. There are other lipids nearby. They can aggregate against the existing sphere, forming filaments. And then you need some really plausible, but you do need some outside mechanism to get them started to break apart 
so that they could then become separate cells. That could happen with temperature changes. For instance, you could imagine a pond where one area is heated by the sun more than the other, and that extra energy from the sun's heat could help to serve break the material apart or some slight shaking from rock movement or other things. So some slight energy you could see how it could eventually get into a self-replicating system. And the amazing thing is these researchers saw these filaments grow spontaneously from the spheres. And they, they had no reason to expect that. But it's also just a, uh, a natural kind of structural formation that happens with these particular chemical compounds when they're in a certain shape. Right. What's really interesting about that article, one of the things I love about it, actually, because one could, you could look at life today and you could say, how could it possibly get started? It's just so complicated. What are the ways that could even happen? And you can look at it and say, you could throw your hands up and say, oh, it's just too complicated. There's, there's no way this could happen. Well, what these researchers talk about, and one of them is the one that Steve just mentioned, you create the conditions that would exist in the primeval earth, and you see what the mechanisms could be. You follow the chemistry. And really, this is a, this is a wonderful chemistry story in many ways, as it describes how if you create conditions that you know could have existed, that were plausible to exist, then you watch what comes out of it. And then you ask the next question. Well, then how could, for instance... You know, how could these lipid molecules we were just talking about break apart to form new cells? So you ask, well, what are the mechanisms there? And then you look at them. And it, it's like one big, long mystery story of the beginning of life. And it has many interesting threads that these scientist detectives are rolling along to try to uncover the clues. Yeah, and I think uh, part of the the effort there is not necessarily to pin down exactly what did happen because that may be unknowable, but to just find out a plausible scenario. Right, and really that's how a lot of science theory works anyway. You, you come up with plausible scenarios and then you test them. So in this case, what this article does, it starts with the, the material, the let's call it the coding material, whether it's DNA, RNA, anything that can record uh, life information and pass it on eventually, and the other materials, such as the lipids that were needed to contain it and create a, a kind of working framework for, for cellular mechanisms to begin to arise, and then trace how those could happen. And it comes up, the story that comes up tells you the experimental evidence for each piece of those steps. And it is a multi-step process for sure, but each one of them has a, a plausible arc of, of theory and then experimental weight behind it. And one of the authors of that Origins of Life piece is Jack Sostak, who was a guest on the podcast, I can't remember if it was a year ago or two years ago, but at the end of this interview, I will be back to let you know exactly what date he was on, so that if you're interested, you can access that podcast from our archives and listen to the interview with him. Now, one of our perennial or monthly, it's both. Favorites is uh, the 50, 100, and 150 years ago. Uh, always a favorite. Always Everybody a favorite. Everybody loves this. Now, there, there are a couple of good things in here, but I want to share something from 1859's uh, August issue of, or September issue of Scientific American. And, uh, and this is a, a quote from that issue. 
The common earthworm, though apt to be despised and trodden on, is really a useful creature. According to Mr. Charles Darwin, they give a kind of under-tillage to the land, performing the same below ground that the spade does above for the garden and the plow for arable soil. Fields which have been overspread with lime, burnt marl, or cinder become in time covered by finely divided soil. This result, usually attributed by farmers to the, quote, working down, unquote, of these materials, is really due to the action of earthworms. Mr. Darwin says, quote, a field manured with marl has been covered in the course of 80 years with a bed of earth averaging 13 inches in thickness, end quote. Now, the reason I really like this is back in early July, I went to Darwin's house and I walked around the, the field outside behind his house and I stepped on the worm stone. He and his son, I believe it was, put this big round stone, they kind of screwed it into the earth so that they could track how the action of the earthworms raised up the soil around the stone because it's the the uh, the movement is imperceptible to our eyes but if you put that reference stone in there you can see how everything else is moving in relationship to it and that's how they came up with that that number and so uh you know I got to stand on the worm stone just you know 6 weeks ago that that piece mentions that worms are sort of despised despised i think I think one of the ways that we've changed in a hundred and how many years since then is we, we have a better appreciation today for these amazing creatures in, in, in a self-interested one, not mm-hmm. just in the terms of nature services, but earthworms are a terrific way, as any composter can tell you. And here it is August, and a lot of us are composting to help digest peels and tops and things like that from out of your vegetable garden and put it back out and... Add some more earth to the top of the soil. Make some tomatoes. Make some tomatoes. Here's a really, this is also a great item, again from September 1859's Scientific American. Professor Hamilton says, quote, Gentlemen have adopted as a national costume a thin, tight-fitting black suit of broadcloth. To foreigners, we seem always in mourning. We travel in black, we write in black, we work in black. Even the day laborer chooses always the same unvarying, monotonous black broadcloth. It is too thin to be warm in the winter and too black to be cool in the summer. He must have walked down a street in Manhattan yesterday. I was thinking also that must have been the origin of the phrase black is the new black. Manhattan has never changed, black, apparently. Black all the time. So we uh, we have a new columnist who's joined the uh, family here. We do. We have uh, Lawrence Krauss, a theoretical physicist and, as it happens, director of the Origins Initiative at Arizona State University, where they are. Uh, we mentioned before, Steve and I were when we were talking about origins as the issue. One of the reasons why origins is so intriguing is not just because we can all say. Well, where did, where did life come from? Where did it, but, but these very questions, where did life come from? Where did the universe come from? Where did people come from? How did language begin? These are some of the most profound, uh, driving questions in science today. And Lawrence Krauss's, Dr. Krauss's, um, in, in initiative 
is seeking to address this in a cross-disciplinary way. In his um, essays for Scientific American, he is also looking, in a sense, at interfaces of things. The column is called Critical Mass, and he will be looking at topics that arise at the interface between science and society. And most appropriately, in his inaugural column in the Origins Special Issue, he's looking at C.P. Snow, the discusser of the unfortunate two cultures, on the one hand, the very literary people, on the other hand, the science-educated people. And we're still, 50 years later, after C.P. Snow's column, trying to figure out a bridge between the two. And uh, Dr. Krauss has some interesting things to say about that in this issue. And you can also access in our archives uh, an interview or a press conference that I recorded where Lawrence Krauss is, is one of the astrophysicists who's speaking. And this was definitely this year at the American Association for the Advancement of Science annual meeting. So it's in our archives. Uh, should be late February or early March. And you can find that at siam.com slash podcast. And uh, I'm back on the back page for anybody who's looking for me. And you can read all about my take on riffling, rifling, raffling, on reading books on the Kindle and the various uh, pitfalls and advantages thereof. There's another thing I wanted to bring up, and uh, it's it's mixed news, but uh, it's, it's important. And that is uh, some of our content is going back behind a paywall on the web. Just want to alert people who've been used to accessing all the content for free over the last year that we've, we've taken this step. So what's, what's going to be available free? What's going to be available at a premium? And why did we do this? Well, I should tell you that, first of all, scientificamerican.com puts up 15 or so new original items every day. Some of them are breaking news, some of them are features, some of them are lovely podcasts by our own Steve Mirsky and others, and um, some of them are slideshows and other sort of multimedia videos, other sort of multimedia presentations that, that I'm delighted we can offer our viewing audience. As many publications have explored different methods of publishing or different models of publishing, so have we. For many years, the magazine was not available on the website, and then only pieces of it were available on the website. And again, we're going back to a model where just a few, it's the feature articles, the long-form feature articles, are behind the paywall. What happens if you visit one of those long-form articles? You will still get a good several hundred words of an overview of what's in the article, the first couple of paragraphs, and you'll have a great sense of, of what else is available should you wish to dive in and get the full presentation. Of course, it's all also available in print form as well. So you have the we have the original material, we have the departments that run in the magazine, such as Dr. Krause's, Lawrence Krause's new column that we talked about, and other columns, Steve's column, still remain available on the website for free. And it's important, I think, uh, we, we're still feeling out what this whole new journalism is going to look like and behave like uh, through the various modern modes of of uh, transmitting the, the information. Uh, but I have to tell everybody out there that as much as I like things to be free when I'm the consumer, I also recognize that this for for the professional journalists, this ain't a hobby. 
And if you want quality journalism, I think we're going to have to get used to paying for it. And it's still going to be relatively inexpensive compared to what it used to be like when everything was disseminated on, you know, with dead tree technology. But um, one of the, the best ways I heard somebody explain it was, you know, if you want to be able to send reporters to Iraq to find out what's going on there, some money has to flow in to that journalistic enterprise so that you're not just getting restaurant reviews from people about what's in their neighborhood. I mean, that's great, too, and if it's free, that's wonderful. But there has to be, at some point, a commitment to professionals examining truly important situations. Now, I'm not saying that's what I'm doing, but every once in a while we touch on something resembling that. And, you know, if, if you want to keep that kind of thing around, you know, a couple of nickels out of the pocket has to actually go into making that product viable. You remind me of a famous quote, which people usually only quote the first half of. The Chris Anderson no, not, not Chris Anderson. Okay. Um, this is, this is by an MIT researcher and it was, it was several years ago. The quote is, information wants to be free. And that's where Chris Anderson stops when he quotes it. That's, that's right. right. So not Chris Anderson. Right. The other half of that quote is information also wants to be expensive. Exactly. And it goes on to explain that because if you want quality information, that takes time to produce and it is thus very precious. And I think it's it's with that half of the quote in mind that Scientific American and other publications need to make these step-by-step choices to find out what ultimately will be best for you, our readers. Because if if the magazine doesn't have a working model of providing good quality material, then no one is served. Yeah, when I said the Chris Anderson quote, that's the quote I was referring to. But he only quotes the first half. And he's wrong. And he's wrong. Because he sells his book. He also gives it away. Right. Online, yeah. yeah. But you know what's really interesting? The unabridged recording of the book is free. The book free, and it is free. The abridged recording of the book, they charge for. Because apparently, the less of it you get, the, the more, more valuable it well, is. Well, this is the, was it Ger- Gerta? No, it was Pascal, Right. this quote. Yeah. I'm so sorry, and this is not a direct quote, but I'm so sorry this letter is so long. I did not have the time to make it short. Exactly. Of course, it takes effort to make something readable and enjoyable rather than blather. But by the same logic, um, if you actually don't read Chris Anderson's book at all, uh, it should cost you an infinite amount of money. <laughs> it's the new math, folks. <laughs> Some bookkeeping. The Jack Shostak podcast was posted on May 7th, 2008, and the Lawrence Krauss podcasts came out on February 18th and 19th of 2009. They're all archived at www.scientificamerican.com slash podcast. And the information wants to be free slash expensive quote is from Stuart Brand's book, The Media Lab, Inventing the Future at MIT, although older and other versions of the quote do exist. Now it's time to play Totally 
bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one. Hearing insults when lying down is less insulting than hearing them while sitting up. Story two. The mission commander of the space shuttle flying right now started out doing lube jobs at an international harvester dealership. Story three. Nitrous oxide, dentist's laughing gas, has been found to actually promote tooth decay. And story four is part of a year-long recreation of Darwin's voyage on the Beagle. An olfactory scientist, that is a smell researcher, will explore how people respond to smell at each of the ship's ports of call. Times up. Story one is true. If you're lying down when insulted, you don't seem to take it as personally as if you're sitting up. That's according to research published in the journal Psychological Science. Too bad we can't drive lying down. Story two is true. Future Marine pilot Rick Sturko described himself as a lube boy, greasing trucks, changing oil, etc. When one day he saw a truck pass that said Cal Poly on it, he found out it was built by Cal Poly engineering students and decided to go there. For more stories about some of the other astronauts currently in space, check out the August 31st episode of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Siam. And story four is true. A researcher from the Monell Chemical Census Center in Philadelphia will take part in the recreation of Darwin's voyage and ask locals to smell twelve different things, including onions, chocolate, and turpentine, at some twenty-five ports of call. The researchers hope that the findings will provide insight into how our response to odor is influenced by culture and gender. One thing was known even back in Darwin's day: if you cut off a fish's nose, it still smells. All of which means that story three about nitrous oxide promoting tooth decay is totally bogus. But what is true is that nitrous oxide seems to be promoting global warming and decay of the ozone layer. Most of it comes from manure and chemical fertilizer, as well as industrial processes. For more, check out the August twenty seventh episode of our weekly environment podcast, Sixty Second Earth, at www.scientificamerican.com/podcast. Well, that's it for this episode of Science Talk. Check out scientificamerican.com for the latest science news, including lots of stuff on the space shuttle mission to the International Space Station. They're up there right now, zipping around over your head. Unlike this podcast for Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.